The views and opinions expressed on the social shade tree do not reflect or endorse its participants or affiliates views. Some issues may be sensitive in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Views and opinions of Johnny Neal II and Melvin Carter III, the host, are theirs. By listening, you agree to hold the host harmless. The social shade tree is created for informational and educational purposes only. Listeners are encouraged to seek their choice of legal, medical, financial, tax, and or other professional advice as it relates to their situation. Happy listening. So greetings to the social shade tree family community. Greetings to the family community behind the blue curtain. Today, we're privileged to have with us uh, retired police officer Stan Mason. Uh, He's on the horn with me and Melvin Carter, Johnny Neal. And uh, I'm proud because he's a friend. He's a community servant. He's a community activist. Uh, Stan brings decades of service to the community in various capacities. I was writing some notes about him. I believe you were in the Air Force. Yeah. Stan. Yeah, let me know. Uh, he was a peace officer in the Waco, Texas area. And after serving and retiring, he now resides in Atlanta where he continues to serve his community and he takes on issues bigger than life. And so we thought we would visit with Officer Mason to see, to get a better talk under the social shade tree. Um, we're going to pull the blue curtain open under the social shade tree and talk about what's happening in America, black America, uh, and, and give you some tips, tools, and tactics in how you can help navigate what's going on. Uh, did I miss anything, brother Melvin? You, oh, bro, you know me, man. I'm, I'm like Kool-Aid when you're searching for the sugar up in the shelf, man. I'm, I'm just here. You're going to drink it either way. So, you know, <laughs> let's go on do this. I, I, I'll add to it. I, I'm, 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 I'm one of those kids that grew up, uh, you know, I'm not, not, not that Stan is that much older than me, but I grew up under well, true community policing. And uh, me and my friends, uh, you know, we we would we really uh, this brother would, would take us under his wing, and he would definitely uh, instill wisdom. You know, my my father would be with him a lot, and I know him. And my father would rap a lot, and so you know, Stan would be, be able to you know to, to drill down with us with the rest of us and say, you know what, man, you know, you, these are some of the things you need to do, and. Again, you know, he had, I want to say thank you publicly for for all the help that you that you gave me and and the community uh, within that North Waco area. Uh, thank you, and uh, let's 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 get to it, man. But you know, bro, before before you before we go into it, it, it's important that that we I say this to you. You know, there were a lot of times, you know, where I, I'm fed up, and 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 you know, you're dealing with all the mess out there. And I'm on my last leg. I'm going to tell you, I sat on that porch many a day with your father. <laughs> and I enjoyed the the friendship, the companionship. But the thing that I loved, your father was a catalyst to me because he sensed, as my elder, he sensed when my tank was running low and when I needed to hear just the right things to redirect me. So, I mean, I, it's, it's never, it's not about Stan because a lot of people can say, well, Stan is doing this, Stan's doing that. But people like your father were the people who everybody didn't see. 
that were the fuel that went into my tank because Stan can't fight something that he's discovering like all of us as it happens. Your father was the one that said, I've been there. I've done that. This worked, this didn't. So I was thankful to have somebody I can go to that had foresight. See, Stan had insight, but he had foresight of this will come. So your father was a big, a very big part of, of you know my policing career in Waco. So you know, bro, you, you you're one of the people that never had to say thank you to me. I, I'm I'm saying thank you to you, you know, for for sharing him with me for my time that I was there. Wow, wow. So so that that's all, Melvin. So you, you know, brother Mason talked about insight versus foresight, and and we can unpack that even more, but. I want to follow up with that question to see what is what is what is the beginning of how would you define what community policing is? The definition of community policing, textbook definition, you know, of community policing, it, it, it's community and police working together to solve community related problems. You know, and, and that's just basically in a nutshell what it is. And I think that community policing has been used as a hashtag. It's become a go-to card. It's become a cliche. It's become a, we've got a protest. Let's throw this card down. And community policing is always on the planning table, but the plan is never implemented. Oh. See, Waco had community policing. When I was there, I was one of the community police officers. And we got it on a grant. And it was extremely successful. That's why you all in North Waco have a zoo. That's why you have a new fire station. That's why you had that new fire station in East Waco. That's what cleaned up Elm Street. When we were dealing with shootings and drug dealing and everything else from, from where Lipson starts on Elm Street on a Saturday all the way up to Clifton, turn left on Clifton to Waco Drive, turn right on Faulkner Lane, and we can go all the way over to across the tracks. You couldn't even move solid cars. It was through community policing that these issues got resolved in a peaceful fashion and, 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 you know, the community was empowered. But that's what community policing is designed to do. Not give credit to the city, not give credit to the police department, but to empower people to fix their own condition and therefore you give them ownership of the problem, but also give them ownership of the solution and credit for the solution. Okay. So when you start community policing and you give ownership to the people, the people truly start, they don't leave the community. So they understand their role um, because they understand that they have value in the community. Right. But let's, let's, we, okay, let's specifically talk about when I started in the 90s, East and North Waco. Let's just start right there. Okay. When I moved there to Waco, and I, I'll tell you, my brother called me when I, I was in Waco three days. And he called me on the phone, and that's back when we had flip flown, uh, flip flown. <laughs> and I was sitting out. Look, he said, "How you like it?" I said, "Man, look, this place is like a chapter out of In the Heat of the Night, the original." <laughs> Sydney Portier. and I told him, I said, "I see black folks here working part time jobs to handle full time bills." Example: I asked one of my relatives. I said, "Well, what do you do for work?" You got to remember, I was coming out of the Air Force, but I grew up in the Northeast, you know, and, and his thing. Well, I paint Miss Bessie's garage. I'm like, well, what, she got a parking garage? 
You know, I mean, <laughs> so I had to look at the mentality that was there, and it's not to take a shot at that demographic of people, but it was to say it's a shot at the opportunity and the cloud that was there, okay? When you put people in boxes and confine them there, they're willing to stay there. Whether or not you put edges on the box, they're not going to move. So I lived at 1911 North Street. So I didn't live in Hewitt or Woodway or Robinson or or any of these places that everybody dreamed about going to because I couldn't. You know, I mean, I'm coming out of the Air Force. I got a little bit of money in the bank. So I'm trying to make my ends meet. So now 1911 North 6th Street, you know, I was in 1993, I, I lived at Crack Central. Okay? When right, I nice. was going off in Parkside, I heard him at my house. My my daughter grew up listening to the gunfire. Now she was over in Japan with me and, and all that. So, you know, she understood peace and serenity. We moved there and she got so used to gunshots that she didn't even know what birds were. I heard the car chases all night, the police sirens. I lived right there. But the beauty of it was I went to all the Adams Drive. I went to all the, the stores there. I went to the barbershops there. I went to church over there. I went to Bledsoe Miller. So people got to see me, not just in a uniform. They knew where I lived because I didn't hide from anybody. I policed that area. But they saw me all these places, so they got to know me beyond just that uniform. Okay, so you actually became a part of the community. Yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask something because, you know, a lot's been happening in Waco with regard to gentrification and the community that you talk about in 1993 Mm -hmm. is different from the community that we got. Mm -hmm in 2020, 27 years ago. Ooh, man, it's been 27 years. Whoa. Um, that kind of messed with my mind. So things change the more they stay the same in regards to Texas. So, ouch. (laughs) So where I was going with that is, so since the community has, since the, when you were here, the community became more cohesive. What do you see that has changed with regard to the community um, going back to where it was as opposed to where it was progressively getting better? Does that make sense? It does. And, and this, you know what? This is the hard conversation. And, and you know, we're going to have it here and it's going to make some preachers upset. It's going to make some black folks yeah. upset. It's going to make some white folks upset, but that's okay. I'm not hard to find. Stevie Wonder can find me with a keyboard, if not serial helping. So I don't run from anybody, but I'm going to say this. When, when I was in Waco and we started community policing, if you lived in North or East Waco, over where, your fa- or, or where, where uh, Melvin's father lived, you couldn't even give your house away. You couldn't give it away. You'd almost have to pay somebody to buy it. The crime was that bad. Mm -hmm. So once we went in with community policing and we started giving people a sense of value in their neighborhood, digging out sidewalks, teaching them how to grow grass, getting rid of the prostitutes and the the crack addicts walking the street and doing the drug raids and, and, and empowering people to where now, if you dreamed about living in Hewitt or Woodway or Robinson, then you knew you couldn't afford it. That's why you weren't there. But when you started to see that ambiance where you lived, see, that's empowerment. It becomes ownership. 
So once we change that dynamic of it, that changes the whole game plan. Now, you mentioned the term of uh, economic development, which I, I'll be quite honest with you. That's I, where I was going. That was my next question. But go yeah, ahead. I, I honestly don't think that America, whether we're talking about Waco, Dallas, Houston, Austin, New York, New, you know, New Jersey, wherever, I don't believe that America quite understands economic development. I think that we've lived through a time of urban renewal in this country, which was the first form that did not work well for black people. Okay. And and that happened up in particularly in areas of North Waco where you see Parkside and where you see Dewey Street only runs one block. Where Dewey Street used to run several blocks before Parkside Villages was brought. Now I got this all from John Zachary, Mr. Zachary, another one of my mentors that's passed away. But good man. Yes. When 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 economic development came into Waco, you had blacks and Hispanics that had prime real estate that the system wanted, which is mostly all the amenities that you see built around Baylor University, okay? That was where the Blacks and Hispanics lived, Third Street Row. Hello, history, nobody, okay? Third Street, the the garden area. Right, once they wanted to build, they relocated these people into North Waco around Dewey Street, which is Parkside Villages, and and, and we know all that. This four Parkside Villages were there, okay? But at the same time, you know, you, you you had a limitation of when you could be out and where you could go. This is in Waco, Texas. So I think that when I speak specifically to what I see in Waco, I, I will not use the term um, urban renewal or economic development because I think those terms are inadequate and it's a disservice to both of those terms to actually use it to describe Waco. When I look at what I see going on in Waco and what I spoke about before five or 10 years before I left Waco, I talked about these businesses that were coming in. I talked about owning your property, spending money on your property, keep your taxes up, buy this lot, protect this. They'll buy it out from under you. And it's not to demonize, and I'm not getting into a demonized right. white people. It's business. Point blank. So, you know, what I see in Waco, I call it antebellum reconstruction because you have a demographic of investors and people who have actually no stake in Waco other than their money and their ideas and their construction plans. But they need that land that these people have. Mm -hmm. They're not concerned with black or white. You have in Waco middle class people typically own that land. So we'll get them, get it from them by any means necessary and use eminent domain if we have to. So these people who are investors can now sit in Waco, whether they're black or white, sit on their house on the hill and look out at all the workers who are going to be black, white, and Hispanic and scrape and scrounge, make our city look good. Just disappear when the tourists come. Now I look at where Waco is right now. And this is why I use the term antebellum reconstruction, because you have effectively raised the tax rate so high that your police officers, your firemen, your teachers, your nurses cannot afford to live in that city. So when they're all gone and moving, what are you going to do? And when the police officers who are very well paid in Waco cannot afford to live there, I know the average citizen can. So you say, we're building five new hotels. That's beautiful. 
Who's going to make the beds and sweep the floors and cook the food and do all the things it takes to move a hotel on a minimum wage that does not afford them enough to live in the city that they serve in? So these people are going to move to Bell County. Right. Move to Bell County and say, I'm going to go to the Motel 6 or Motel 3 and make beds. I don't make as much, but I'm not spending as much going to work. So I think that for me, I'm not an economist, but I think that Waco has in effect cut its own throat by not taking care of its people. It offers no entertainment for the black community there, none. And one of the reasons I left when I left, one of the driving reasons was, you know, and I said this when I spoke at the Chamber of Commerce there, the Robinson and Hispanic Chamber invited me and I had a good time there. And I said, you know, at that time, I said, I'm a 55-year-old black man. There's nowhere in Waco for me to buy clothes unless I want to look like a pimp, a thug, or a cowboy. No place. So where does Stan's money go? To Austin and Dallas. Now, San Antonio is doing great with the Hispanic dollar. So I asked them, I said, if I gave you right now a billboard, and you imagine in your head, Digital, video billboard, uh, regular computerized, whatever you want. Put it anywhere you want in this city. And if I said to you, put something on that billboard that would attract black tourists to Waco, what would you put? Everybody's eyes instantly opened and their mouths were wide open. I said, now, the vision that came in your mind that opened your eyes and opened your mouth, is the reality that being black in Waco shows you every day. And when you say, when the city says, you're part of our vision, you're part of our future, to that I say, James Baldwin said, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. And so, uh, and word, so there brother. is no place. There is no place, what he was saying, from what I understand, Mel, is there is no place for African-Americans as much as it's perceived that, or I shouldn't say just that, there is no place for economically struggling folks in Waco. I, I, I'll, I'll, make this, it I'll say this. I think there is a place, but Frederick Douglass also said, uh -oh. now struggle, there could be no progress. Now, Marilyn and Dwayne Banks carved out a place and kept their place successful and kept their place dignified on Elm Street and did the right things and put up with all the, the stuff we know that happened in the 90s. But I believe that sometimes, and, and you know, I like, like I said, I don't want to throw everything on the city of Waco or white folks or this or that, but let's be true about it. If we're going to do, you know, we're going to do a show that we're going to be real about it. When I went over there in the 90s and I looked at these burnout buildings, I'm going to tell you what the brothers were mm -hmm. peeing in them, shooting dice in them, smoking weed in them, selling dope out of them, running chicks out of them. So some guy came from the Middle East and, and set up a table one day and put an apple on it, and we laughed at him. Next week, he had an apple, orange, and a pear, and we laughed at him. The next week, he had an apple, orange, a pear, and a guy he was paying to rake it up, and we laughed at him. Six months later, he opened up a grocery store that sells nothing but lottery tickets. We ain't got no money. We scratching off a future instead of working for one. Instead of scratching mm. out a living, we trying to scratch off a future. You know, cheap liquor, beer, cigarettes, drug paraphernalia. Hello, America. Drug paraphernalia, and you can get the drugs out the back door. Eight liner machines, like we got the money to gamble. 
mm-hmm. no fresh bread, no fresh vegetables, no fresh dairy products in our neighborhood. And we want to condemn this guy with a Middle Eastern name. You know what? He is supply and demand. He set up what people were going to buy. The fact of the matter is, had the brothers tightened down on Elm Street back in the 90s when I told them to, I said, buy that store and open it up. Why are you driving eight miles away to get fresh bread when you could put it right here and make money? See, and, and we didn't. So I'm not going to blame the city for coming in and saying, we're going to knock this stuff down and revitalize. We missed our opportunity. Why? Because we were asleep at the wheel. Now, there are things that I think the African-American chamber should have stepped up. I think that um, some, and this is my personal opinion. Don't know preachers take it personal. If y'all do, most of y'all got my number. You hadn't called me since I retired unless you need something, but you probably will call after this. You know, <laughs> I think that a lot of black people in Waco were lulled to sleep Sunday mornings. Well, it's going to be all right. Jesus and you knew you didn't have enough gas to get from that, from that church to home. And, and, and you know, Carlton Stimson, and I will always lift that brother up. See, when I first got to Waco and his barbershop is in North Waco, Steve would cut my hair. And one of the things about, see, you always saw Mr. C at the problem. Yeah, right. Always at the problem. I called C several times. I'm working a questionable death. An older person died. It's three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning. It's not a member of his. They could be white. They don't know anybody. I asked the family. I'm there working the, mur- the, the the crime scene. It's not a murder, just questionable death. You know, do you have a preacher? No. Would you like to talk to one? Yes. Who's your preacher? So so I call them. No answer. Every time I call C, and I never called him any more any any earlier than three in the morning. He always answered. You know what his answer was? Every time. Stan, give me 30 minutes to get dressed. I'll be right there. And he was there. Didn't know those people from a can of paint. Wow. That's what's that's real. Good because I think a lot of times. That's, you know, that's what the ministry is really about. But go ahead. Sure. You know, I mean, but I, I think that sometimes, and I'm like I said, I'm not knocking any church or any particular pastor. But you got to put work in. And I think sometimes people get caught up in, well, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're gonna, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer said, you can pray until you faint. But until you get up and try to do <laughs> something, God is not going to put it in your lap. You know, and, and Amen. that's just me. I'm just built that way. We can pray when we get there. Right. Or while we're doing what we need to do. But we make things mm-hmm. difficult. That's what turns the community off. We we want to meet to have a meeting to set up the next meeting to talk about <laughs> organizing who's going to be in charge. And then we're eight months into the incident before we ever talk about the problem. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we got to figure out. Dad, we got to figure out how to make the community. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so we got to figure out how to get the community back on board. And I guess Stan brings up a lot of interesting points. We just got to figure out how to bring the community back on board and stop making excuses in the process. You know what I say? And then take the action and not be apologetic for the actions that we take. You know what, Johnny? I, I, I say this. We don't need to get the community on board. The community is on board because they're living in it. 
We need to get these so-called leaders in, on board, okay? And the first thing we have to do is separate the wheat from the chaff. REV period does not always mean yep. reference. When you get in your car, in your garage, or your driveway, you're going to put it in REV, right? Which way is it going to go? Yep. Backwards. Backwards. So there why are we struggling with, with voter rights legislation in 2020? Why? And I'm not knocking preachers. At the time of the civil rights struggle, at the time we went through it in the 50s and 60s, they were our leaders, our spokesmen. But that's also when Wednesday night, when you walked into a prayer meeting, somebody stood up as the representative that went to the school board meeting and let us know what was going on. Somebody stood up as the representative from the city council meeting and let us know what's going on. We stopped participating in the system and the church became a moneymaker and a fashion show. That's hard talk. Mm -hmm. Don't they are dirty learning? Yes. White folks, I don't care what white folks hear because you want to know the truth? White folks are fully aware of our struggles for two reasons. Number one, they see us going through them and not speaking. And number two, 90% of the obstacles we're trying to get over, they put in place. Not all white people, but they put in place. So if I put a, a brick behind your tire and you say, well, I don't want to say nothing about that brick. Stan might know. I put it there. <laughs> we, we don't <laughs> where I think we are failing as a community is that we're not willing to teach and cultivate and empower those who are in a position to understand the problem at its core, that is our young people. They don't yeah. hear we shall overcome speeches. They want to see mm -hmm. and recognize you from being at the We have black leaders that are so important now that you got to make an appointment to see them. Amen. And they're the same people who get these invitations. Well, ooh, I got invited to lunch with the mayor. Oh, I, I, I ate with the city councilman. You know what? Just because you're invited to dinner doesn't mean you're not the main course. <laughs> you got to come in and dress like the chef because the chef serves everybody. <laughs> Serve and leave. And that Bible says, as you've done unto the least of my people. At least. Christians, not the black folks or the white folks. Not the mm -hmm. gays or the straight, not the ones you like. It says the least of my people. Yep. That is the difference. So I say the leader does not always have to be the preacher because when you put five of them in a room, they're going to fight to see who's in charge amongst themselves. Exactly. And if the church is at the corner. Hello, East Waco and North Waco. If your church is at the corner of murder and mayhem, you do not get to be the expert on the problem from your house at Lovely and Lacey. And then when the media leaves the crime scene and you've given this big, big speech, oh, we need thoughts and care and teddy bears and prayers. You gave all that at the scene and never to be seen again. I remember the shooting that went out of the gardens. All these preachers met and we're going to hold weekly Bible study and we're going to do this and we're going to change these brothers. Poof, went away. Wasn't profitable. Exactly. So it's not about fame. It's about solving problems. And if you really want to solve it, I'll tell you how you can tell the ones that want fame and the ones that don't. Everything I do, my show, I pay for out of my retired salary. I have no sponsors. I have no GoFundMes. You don't see me asking for donations. You can click on and follow me or subscribe or don't. I don't care. I'm still going to be here. Because I'm just for me doing what God sent me to do. And he didn't tell me to be polite. He gave me a Jeremiah Amen. spirit. 
I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make peace. I'm not interested in who likes me and who does not like me. That's irrelevant. You know, we've got to be problem oriented, solution oriented people of all colors. And you got to have hard conversation. So the hard conversation yeah. now is, is one of the hard conversations. It will several but that are on my mind. What do we do about the situations where we have shootings in places like Wisconsin, Atlanta, uh, Kansas? How do we deal with that community and police, number one? And then number two, because a lot of these recipients of, of bullets in the back, bullets through doors, <laughs> bullets in Wendy's parking lots, happen to be African-American male brown brothers and, and brown sisters, um, how do we teach those uh, children, those babies of ours, although some of them are grown babies and should probably know better, how do we teach those African-American males, African-American females to engage with those authority figures? Okay. So th those two questions. You know, Malcolm said, you know, we, we can't expect anyone else to respect us and join us till we first learn how to respect each other. So... I have to say, we have to stop shooting each other. Before we get to that parameter, let's let's go and be real. You know, we have to stop shooting each other over things like tennis shoes. Your side boo fell out with you and is messing with somebody else. We kill each other over craziness. Yeah. Okay. We have to own the, own that apple. And that's something we need to choose. And now I say that, and before white people be getting to clap too much, and it's not about white or black, but I'm going to say this. You know, yes, I'll talk about black-on-black -black violence, but then I will also say to, the, and I've sat on these panels and these discussions, these shows, and they always bring up the white guy that will ask me, well, what about black-on-black -black violence? Let's address it. And I address it this way. If you want to talk about violence, Let's drop black and white and just deal with violence. Let's just look at that word, murder. Black people in America do not have a history of killing white people. White people have a history of killing us. Or Native Americans or Hispanics or anything that is non-white. Now, if we take that... And we say, well, what happened before America? They were in Europe killing each other, where everybody was the same color. Now, I'm not knocking them, but we're going to look at murder, and we're going to look at murder as just a death, whether it's in battle or whether it's on the street, justified or unjustified. A justified uh, police shooting that results in a death is still a murder. It's just justified. So let's take the numbers. How many wars have black people started in America? Huh? Zero. Zero. But we but 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 we went and fought in them. Let's look at our school shooters. Let's look at our church shooters. Let's look at our nightclub shooters. Let's look at our workplace shooters. Let's look at our bombers. Let's take the Klan, the Aryan Brotherhood, every nation. We can stack up bodies all day. That's semantical, and we don't need it to reinforce a point. My thing is this: if we're going to deal with these issues, and we want to talk about shootings, particularly when we talk about the institution of policing, we have to go back to training and conditioning. And I don't think it's inherently yeah. racist so much as I think it's an apathy and a, a lack of understanding how people process information. When you go into the academy and you take these young, you got 20 young people, all of them want to be police officers. They're excited. 
you get through your first week that's just filling out papers and getting all your books and all that in your little cadet uniform and you're all happy with it and you want to be on the team. You're trying to make the team. Anything anybody tells you that's already on the team, you locked in, you're listening to them. But everybody wants to know that second week, when we're going to shoot the guns, when we're going to shoot the guns. <laughs> so you, you, you take these kids, and I call them kids, but you take them out to right. the range. Some of them never heard a gun, never held a gun. Some maybe have. Some probably didn't hold one legally. But everybody's out there. And you're going through these drills. The first five days is just getting used to nothing else but holding a gun, shooting a gun with his sight picture, sight alignment, trigger pull, all these mechanics for shooting. So these kids are listening to every single word that comes out of that range instructor's mouth. They're listening because why? They want to do their best. Why? Because they want to make the team. So when you put them up in front of that target, there's 15, 25 yards down range. And you tell them, remember, every command, they got their headphones on, you're on the speaker, so that they don't want to miss anything. I don't want to mess up. I want to do my best. So they're concentrating. And they hear, shooters, watch your targets. Targets will turn towards you, 10 seconds, five rounds, center mass. Everything in the black is a hit. Everything in the white is a miss. Targets turn, boom, they fire. They come out there 20 minutes later, shooters, watch your targets. They'll turn towards you, three rounds to the body, two to the head. Everything in the black is a hit. Everything in the white is a miss. What are you doing? You're conditioning them. What are they Bad. hearing? They're focusing on, I've got five rounds to fire. Everything in the black is a hit. Now, is that in and of itself racist? No, that isn't. But the target is a black silhouette against a white background. And you're saying everything in the white is a mess. That's bad. You don't want to do that. You want to keep your fire centered here in the black. That's not racist, but it is an automatic response. And then when we do our scenarios, and everybody who's a suspect has a black sounding name. And everybody who's a victim has a white sounding name. So we cultivate this spirit of implicit bias. And to some people, we strengthen preconditioned stereotypes and beliefs. And to others, we create them in them. And that includes black officers, because many of them want to belong so bad to the blue team. That you being black, the city needed X amount of black officers and you made it on your merits, not because you were black, but you're there. So it's good for the city to be able to say, we got this training class and five black people and four Spanish. Look at how well we're doing. But just don't be too black. Once you get out on the street, don't be black. We're mm -hmm. glad you're here. When we need you to be black, we'll call you. Uh, Hispanic <laughs> person, when we need you to, 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 to translate for us, we'll call you. But other than that, don't don't be too Hispanic. And that's not just particularly Waco, Texas. That's policing as a whole. Wow. Well, and, and what do you say, uh, Stan? And I'm, I'm sorry I missed y'all earlier. Uh, something happened and I lost sound. But uh, thank you for that tribute to my father. I know uh, I, I really appreciate that because, uh, I mean, uh, I miss him a lot. And uh, I know that he loved you, Stan. Uh, he talked about you tremendously, you know. So, um, but, but I, I, you know, thinking thinking back uh, when the police force first started, wasn't it so? Well, uh, it was uh, slave patrols. Am I correct? Sure. Uh, Early. They actually 
that's how that that's exactly how the police department started. So, uh, do you think that a lot of that carried over to what it is today? I think that policing in America started first off under Sir Robert Peel, who is uh, called the founding father of modern day policing, and and that's why English police officers are called Bobbies. And he had nine tenets of policing, which is basically the Ten Commandments of policing that he wrote that should be followed. America brought some of the old English concepts there. But when it came to law enforcement, when they started it out, you had a constable or a sheriff that had a whole county, one man. He can't do it all. Mm -hmm. So he needed help because you had this slave owner was shooting this slave owner because my slave is over here and he won't return him. So he needed to deputize people. Now we're getting into where deputies came from. See, but they, they deputized slave patrols and their purpose was to catch runaway slaves and solve slave disputes. Now, that, that philosophy of policing, and this is where I'm very critical of policing, and I say the policing has failed to evolve. Even your iPhone will tell you when it's time to update. It'll force you to do it. It'll tell you either now or later are we going to do it. But policing hasn't done that because it hasn't been called to task based upon its history and current practices to do it. So when you have these slave patrols that are there, anybody who says that's nonsense and I don't believe it, I'll tell you what you do. When you get off this video, I want you to go on to, to Google. And I want you now, if you notice all municipal or city police departments, you see our badges, they're shaped like a shield. And you even hear city police officers say my shield, not my badge. They'll call it a shield. But when you look at it, at, at your uh, sheriff's departments and DPS here, there in Texas, but when you look at your county sheriffs, it's always a star. Google slave catcher badges and the slave catcher badges early on were a star and it has never gone far from there. Now, am I saying the sheriff's departments today are racist, this and that? No, because we, when we don't have conversations like this, they don't get to understand the history that comes behind that badge beyond your organization. How did your organization pick that symbol and why? Mm. Preach. You know, You're getting deep, brother. You're getting deep now. You, you, you're really getting deep. Well, I'm going to ask you another question. Because I, I think uh, the president of the United States needs to be educated. Hmm. Systemic racism. He break it down. To, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, but break down systemic racism and, and what exactly. Because I know there's a lot of brothers out here that probably don't understand what systemic racism is. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not testing them, but the, but the president of the United States obviously doesn't know what that means. From your point of view, what is systemic racism? Okay, systemic racism. Before we can even get to that term, we black and white have to understand another term: implicit bias, because there's exactly. a line between implicit bias and systemic racism. It's a, a slippery slope, and all of us have implicit bias. You yes, know, we, we do. We see a white guy in a Ford vehicle with, with, with a Mohawk or whatever. We are, you know, our antennas go up. We don't know that man. Or yep. you see a black guy walking. So we all deal with, I think, implicit bias on a daily basis, which is oftentimes called out as racism when it really isn't, which leads to overuse of the race card that we see so much. Now, when we get into systemic racism, to these brothers, I would say that systemic racism is 
that talk that your father had to have with you about the police that all of our fathers had at night that white folks don't have to have. It was when even at nine and 10, you knew in certain circles, certain environments and certain things, you had to have your antenna up and you couldn't go. That's systemic. When we look at what used to be the Green Book, and for those that don't know what the Green Book was, the Green Book was published and, and back in the 40s and 50s. And what the Green Book did is when black people wanted to go from point A to point B, it told you where you could stop and where you couldn't. That's the Green Book. Today, we still have the Green Book. See, because if I said right now, I'm going back to Waco to visit some friends, automatically in my head, I know where I can stop and I know where I better not stop. So we don't have the luxury to just get in our car and go like you see on the Buick commercials, travel the road and open. No, that's bullshit, man. You can't do that. (laughs) You know, and we all know that. But see, we don't vocalize that enough. So that is systemic racism. Let me throw one at y'all, though. How about systemic apathy? Mm-hmm. How about the fact that in many of our inner city schools, including Waco, civics is not taught in school anymore. We wonder why our kids don't know the branches of government, don't know the constitution, yep. don't know their rights. That's not on the school. That's on the citizens that have not gone to the school board and demanded that it be taught. Yep. Yeah. You know, a lot of those problems that we have it has been stemmed from from our lack of of knowledge mm-hmm. and our lack of 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 spreading knowledge to our young people. So you know, a lot of the issues that we're that we're discussing, you know, I mean, like you said, I, at nine years old, I had a talk that told me how to you know how to present myself when the police stopped me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I understood that. Our young brothers these days, you know, uh, I don't. I don't think they have, some of them haven't had that talk, you know, so, you know, they, they, they feel a little more freer than we do. But they have have street knowledge. And number one, your number one thing on a traffic stop is survive. Keep your mouth shut. You're not going to fix. When I pull somebody over, I'm going to write a ticket, whether you like it or whether you don't, you know, that was my thing. Or if I wrote it or didn't write it, whatever the case may be, but nothing you said there was going to dissuade, you might come up with something where I go, wow, I understand that. But for most of the part time, the officers pretty much know. Yeah. So you might as well keep your mouth shut, do what you're supposed to do. And this is where not researching and not knowing, for instance, if, if do you live in a, in, in a um, must ID state or not? Yeah. Atlanta, Georgia is. So when we get into watching these videos where you see these white folks acting crazy on these videos, I'm not showing you anything, officer. I'm not talking. I'm going to be quiet. And we think we could do that. You already know your situation is worse than theirs. Why would you try to emulate them? Exactly. It, it, it makes no sense. And then we got Jordans on that cost $150, but we don't have a dash cam in the car that cost 110 <laughs> but we want somebody to take our word on it. Exactly. So, so you, he, you, brother Stan, you you hit on a lot of stuff. You went from implicit bias to systemic racism, or from systemic racism to implicit bias, and then we talked about systemic apathy and how our young brothers need to be ready to engage the police because we know that if we do get stopped, we just need to be. We need to have a set pattern in how we react. 
Hands at hands at 10, 10 o'clock and two o'clock. Mm-hmm. ID within reach so that you don't look funny. Oh, he grabbing a cell phone, something crazy. I have a question though that kind of ties back to all of this. Mm-hmm. Because I think we're gonna have to break this. I think we're gonna have to break this podcast up, Melvin, into like three segments, because this is just <laughs> richer than richer than sugar that put diabetes on black folks. <laughs> <laughs> but could you unpack a little bit the idea of white privilege and Stan and I talked about this a little, the idea of white privilege, but also, wait a minute, the idea of black privilege as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's start with black privilege. We'll get that one out of the way first. Cause we can be on white privilege for a while. Black privilege, black privilege is we can all move around the hood. White folks can't do that. We can't. Black privilege is when you go to that sporting event you're competing in and your white counterparts look over and just go, ooh, we're going to have our hands full today. We've all felt that. If we play sports, let's be honest about it. We knew where we were just like, oh, we're going to trash them. Yeah. And, 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 and that's black privilege. Does it gain us anything? No. Do we get anything out of it? No. So I don't really know if privilege is the right word for it. Or, but if, when I look at white privilege, you know, a perfect segue, I did my show this week, and I wanted to talk about what was going on in Kenosha. Mm-hmm. So I, especially Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse, the uh, 17-year-old white supremacist. Yes, let's get to it. I had Mark Hughes on my show for the first 40 minutes. Now, for those who don't know Mark Hughes, Mark is the brother that when the Dallas officers were shot during the Black Lives Matter rally in Dallas, Mark was up there practicing his Second Amendment rights with his AR-15 on. And Mark Mm -hmm. actively sought out the Dallas police. Please take my gun. I'm not involved, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, And so Mark was still held for about 12 hours at Dallas PD, treated like a murderer. Never mind the fact that you're still getting fired from who the guy that was shooting at the cops. Still, you got this guy down there who's saying, I wasn't me, I'm just here. And you're still getting fired, but they're treating like, well, there might've been two of them. Okay. <laughs> so Mark tells his story, not Stan's words, uninterrupted. I let Mark tell his whole story. Now I said, let's talk about Kyle Rittenhouse. Well, he's, he's a patriot and he's going to defend these stores. First off, he don't live there. He drove there with his mother across state Mm -hmm. line, 17 year old with an AR 15. Mm -hmm. They arrive in Kenosha. This is all white privilege. Now they arrive in Kenosha. They meet. I'm guessing it was Kenosha PD. There were two separate entities there, Kenosha PD and Kenosha Sheriff's department. I'm assuming they met with the PD at the rally point where we see all the militia people. We see the video Mm -hmm. water. Yeah. Give me some water. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Hey, we really appreciate you guys being out here. Thank- now, you're there to enforce a curfew as a law enforcement officer, not a black or white curfew, not a Republican, Democrat, the curfew, period. Shouldn't nobody been on the street but cops. But yet, you could have started arresting folks right there, but they didn't. They gave them water, told them, go, go this way. Yeah, they're down the street. Okay, Commander, we're going down the street. We'll take care of them. Thanks. See you guys. Yeah, we appreciate you guys supporting us and being out here. They go down and it kicks off. Now, Rittenhouse 
was very involved in his Blue Lives Matter, and, and it's not the trash Blue Lives Matter, but he's involved with them. He's involved with the explorers in his particular city where he lived. It's important that people understand those officers in Kenosha had no idea who Kyle Rittenhouse was. They didn't know him from a can of paint. So when he walks down the street with his hands up in the air where everybody's saying it was self-defense, that's bullshit because he just killed somebody up the street. Now, how many times have we seen in America when the narrative fits and the, the crowd wrestles the shooter? Oh, great citizens. They did everything right. But all of a sudden, these people who were chasing him, they can't see it. See, it's not the, the action. It's individual causes. So he goes down the street, gives a hand signal. We don't know if that was predetermined or not, but he definitely gave a hand signal. Those officers were in Sheriff's Department, and it says on their vehicle, Sheriff's Department. They know what the heck he was talking about. So he goes down past, they passed right by him. They didn't pass by Mark, but they passed by him. Now, they didn't know who Kyle Rittenhouse was. They never worked with Kyle Rittenhouse on the Explorers. All they saw was a young white kid with an AR-15 across his chest, and this is what they didn't see, a mob, even though the mob was white, chasing him. I would think as a police officer, why are these people chasing this guy? Yeah. And why is he walking and not running? Well, he just shot some people. So, of course, ain't nobody going to run up on him. And not one of those officers thought, let's detain him. They let him go. Mm -hmm. home. So, 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 Stan, let me ask you something. I mean, he's 17 years old. He has a, an AR-15. Isn't that illegal as a 17-year-old? Yes, I mean, he, Yeah, he's been charged with that. Yeah, and 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 he need, he doesn't have a, a license, obviously. Uh, shouldn't uh, the responsibility fall back on the person, which was his mother, who drove him to the rally? Why hasn't she been apprehended? Because well, why hasn't Breonna Taylor's murderers been apprehended? See, That's true. This is see, this is where people are missing the whole call to what we want to call social justice or whatever geopolitical uh, spin they want to put on it. These are questions that are not difficult questions. We're saying you do this over here, but you don't do it here, and I'm questioning the inconsistency in your actions. Okay, that lady should be in jail. Absolutely. But, and I'm not condoning violence when I say this, but Dr. King said the riot is the voice of the unheard. Yeah. See, and sometimes, yes, rioting and looting and burning up stuff, that's ridiculous. Don't burn up your own community. But sometimes I don't think we go back and hold our politicians accountable for that action also. Amen. Your inaction motivated the reaction to your inaction. But we don't vote. That's why we are a silent voice screaming in the wilderness. Yeah. Outstanding. Outstanding. I mean, you, you, you put that, I mean, I couldn't have said it any better. I mean, uh, but I just wanted people to, to know that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, he's an underage individual and, and yes, he should be held accountable for his actions. But also, everybody in that house that raised him should be accountable uh, also for his actions, you know, especially the mother who drove him down there. But, but you know, when we look at and, and see, these are the things where we're particularly with, with young black folks today, when they're distrustful of the system and people go, well, they're rebels. No, they're not rebels. They're obeying what their senses have shown them. OK, when when I ask you right now, where's Dylan Roos mother? He walked in the church, killed nine people. Where's she? 
We didn't get the yeah. hurdle, see, and that that that's where we have to deal with the, the the selective process, whether it's the family court system, whether it's the criminal court system, but we have to deal with when we become selective and who we process or prosecute and to what degree we go after them. It sends messages. You know, this is why people have grown distrustful of the system. It's not every officer. It's individual no. officers and a conglomeration of what they see as a history of performance from their particular police department, sheriff's department, district attorney's office. This, these are the things that have made black folks tired. Yes, yeah. we've got dirty baggage. Mm-hmm. So does everybody else. But we, I think we no longer are going to be simply the magic carpet that folks can wipe their feet on and ride to the next thing. You know, and I think that today the movement is saying to the establishment, you're no longer Aladdin and I'm not your magic carpet. Amen. I'm tired of being walked on. But the problem mm-hmm. is we need voices that come without titles and commas behind them. Thank you. You know, yeah. let the let the mother, single mother speak. Let, let that young brother that says, yeah, I sold dope. I sold dope for five years. I never got caught. I walked out of the game on my own. I'm not doing what Malcolm or Martin did, but I'm doing better than I was. Give him some recognition. Give yeah. him some motivation. If you could sell dope and dodge the police and rivals and make money mm-hmm. and could tell weight in your hand, you could sell cars and houses. We just have to redirect that energy in a positive exactly. way. You, exactly. I agree. Exactly. I agree. Brothers, uh, we, so we... You are, you are absolutely... Yeah, so we need to be we need to be deliberately, authentically engaged on every level. Yeah, H- having a Black Lives Matter T-shirt or mask, an Afro with a pick in the back and a fist on it is not enough. Because yeah. let's be honest, there's some white folks out there doing more for the progression of black people than some black folks out here. They always got something to say. That's real talk. It is. Because you, you know, know what? If you think it's black, it's it's difficult being black at a black rally. Try being white at a black rally. Yeah. And I'm not talking about these young interlopers that are in there burning everything up that we're getting blamed for. I'm talking about the middle-aged white folks who still have to go back to their businesses and get that side eye. Exactly. Get exactly. So, you know, I think that when I talk from the perspective of black and white, I'm not talking so much the color as I'm talking about the, mm-hmm. the attitude. See, because I know a lot there of you black go. people, I know some white folks that do more in the black cause than some black folks. And when I talk yeah. about white this and white that, I'm not saying skin color, I'm saying that privileged attitude. A word I have grown to hate lately is the word patriot. Yeah. Dog whistle word. That means good old boys, us. Yeah, patriots can take over mm-hmm. a Capitol building in Michigan. They just walk up there and storm in with their guns. Mm-hmm. But black people can be killed with a cell phone. Yes, they can. Man, that is huge. So this this has been refreshing. So what I would like to do is continue the conversation on a larger platform. And what I would like, hope that we could do is bring our audience to the behind the blue curtain audience and come up with more collaborative efforts and and go from there. Now, Stan, how can people get in touch with you? Tell, can you give them your Facebook info? 
I'm easy. I'm easy to find. You you can go to Stan Mason on Facebook, and I'm at like that five thousand friends thing, and that's superficial to me. It doesn't mean that because I go through and weed out folks all the time. But even my <laughs> Facebook is open, so being on my friends list doesn't give you a secret password or secret access unless I block you. And those I blocked knew I blocked them because I told them I was going to do it and why. So I don't have no steam there. But there you go. You can see me. You don't have to be on my friends list. You can go to stanmason.com. That's my website. I paid for it. You're not going to see no advertising. Nobody's going to ask you for any money. None of that is there. And uh, the radio show is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Stan Mason. And everything we do, I pay for. Nobody's paying me nothing. So I have no allegiance to Republicans or Democrats or police chiefs or Black Lives Matter or anybody else. So I'm real. So so people can get with you at stanmason.com mm-hmm. or the radio show blogtalkradio.com yep, forward slash Stan, Stan Mason. Yep. Now now I went to public school. People my wife hates when I say that, but I went to public school. So that's S T A N M A S O N. Stan Mason. Yes, sir. Or okay. you know what? If you just go on Google, and I'm proud of this because I'm really proud of people, not me. You know, if you go on to your Google and you just put in Stan Space Mason, just put it in, hit enter. And this is what Waco and a lot of us people who think we don't have a voice have done. I'll take up the entire first page of Google under my name. And that's not because of me. That's because of people who have researched that. Who is this guy? What are they talking about? So it's it's a matter of people want real. And they want a, a average. Mm-hmm. So you can call in and say how you feel. You don't have to agree with me. I've had the Texas president of the Proud Boys on the show. I did a show with the uh, Atlanta president of the LGBTQ community on the show. I did a show on uh, missing black women called The Invisible Woman. 80,000 missing black women in America. Nobody wants to talk about that. So we we deal with what is real for two hours. No commercials. You're not going to get cut off. Well, we got to cut the commercial. No, we don't do that here. We rolling. And we up against the clock every week. Just being 100. I mean, I tell people, don't bring your feelings. You know, we're not interested in your feelings. If there's no child seats at our table, you know, you're going to have to eat the meat. <laughs> it's only adults allowed. And I will use colorful expletives like I did a couple times here. Nothing bad. I don't use Lord's name in vain. We don't go down that road. But I will use color because sometimes the situation is dire. And I refuse to dress the situation up to make it palatable for people in a position to affect change so that they can view our condition and say, well, that's just an inconvenience. That's what our leaders have done. They have taken our condition and dressed it up and presented it to those in power as an inconvenience. And we wonder why nothing gets done. Don't blame the people with the power. Blame the messenger. As Malcolm said, rotten, scared to death, rabbit-blooded leadership need to be put out the past. Malcolm was powerful, brother. <laughs> Malcolm was powerful. That powerful, was brother. powerful brother. So, Melvin, you want? Do you have any uh, two things? I'm I'm out. I'm good, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna visit with Stan. But uh, Melvin, do you, do, do, brother Stan, you have anything you want to close with, and then we'll let Melvin give the closing uh, remarks. I'm good, bro. I just like I said, this is the type of interviews I like to do. I don't want to know 
when people, well, do you want a list of questions? <laughs> We're going to ask you that. I don't care what you ask me. You know, I mean, just like I'm mad. Man, don't, talk, don't talk about me like that. <laughs> you know, just be man enough to get your response, you know? So I like this because this is authentic. <laughs> this is real. And I think when people see it, they see three brothers talking and it's not fake and prepared and all exactly. that. You know? Yeah. Beautiful. I, I would definitely agree with that. Real recognize real, as they say on the street at all mm -hmm. costs. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that uh, in, in this lifetime, as I've always said, the struggle is real. Mm -hmm. So we need to get real with the struggle. Mm -hmm. And iron sharpens iron. Amen. All day long. All right, you brothers be out. <laughs>